Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and reading and more. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today is another episode of The Stacks Book Club. We're discussing Pulitzer Prize finalist, The Light of the World by Elizabeth Alexander. To help us discuss this book about grief and family and creating a life worth living, we have Danny McLean, who is the author of We Live for the We. There are no spoilers this week. You can connect with Danny and the Stacks in the show notes and find all the details of everything we discussed on today's episode there as well. If you love the Stacks and want to support the work we're doing on this show, join the Stacks Pack over on Patreon. That's a place where you can contribute to the work we're doing and get perks and inside access to the Stacks, like our virtual book club and more. To join the Stacks Pack, go to patreon.com slash the Stacks. I want to say a shout out to Edna Trujillo and Jenna for being our two newest members of the Stacks Pack. Thank you, ladies. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and that you leave us a rating and a review. All right, let's dive into our conversation with Danny McLean about The Light of the World by Elizabeth Alexander. All right, you guys, we are back again today with Danny McLean, who's the author of We Live for the We. Today for the Stacks Book Club, we're discussing The Light of the World by Elizabeth Alexander, which was a Pulitzer Prize finalist um, in 2016. And it's the story of Elizabeth Alexander and her husband who passed away suddenly right at the age of 50. And it's an incredible book. Elizabeth Alexander is a poet, but it's a memoir written in prose, but it has a lot of poetry in it, um, in her writing. And there are not spoilers today necessarily, but we're going to talk about the book in detail. If if you didn't know the book was about her husband dying, that's pretty much the only spoiler in the entire book. But um, if you want to read it first, I highly recommend reading it. If you want to read it after, that's fine too. Um, so Danny, thank you for being here again. Thanks for inviting me. I'm so happy. Um, you picked this book. You'd read it before. You said, I'm looking for an excuse to read yes. it again. And I said, let's do it. And thank you. This was such an amazing book. You're welcome. I'm glad you enjoyed I it. I loved it. I mean, usually we start with like, what did you think of this book? Mm-hmm. But what do you think of this book? Yeah, I love this book. So um, this book came out in 2015. And 2015 is the year that my aunt, Pam McLean, passed away. Mm-hmm. And um, she was like a second parent to me. My mom has seven sisters. Um, my aunt Pam moved in with us when I was eight years old. And she was like my second mom, basically. And so um, 
my book is actually dedicated to my mother and my aunt, mm. Pam McLean. Um, and so, and there's a lot about my book's origin story that is tied up in my aunt's passing. Okay. I don't, I haven't really talked publicly about that or gotten into that, but it's true. So I read this book because, um, I read it right after my aunt passed away in the spring of, or maybe the summer of 2015. And I was taken by this book because it talks about grief in a way that I had never really seen grief mm -hmm. written about. And I needed to feel, um, I needed some way to like make sense of my grief. I is the first losing her was the first time I had lost anyone close to me. Um, and so the way that Elizabeth Alexander writes so movingly about loss and mm -hmm. like grief, but also the joy of memory and like love, like deep love for someone who's just no longer in the physical realm. I just felt, um, I felt really seen by that writing and helped me make sense of my own grief. Um, so I adore this book. I, it also is just like so beautiful. I mean, she, because she is a poet, she, the way that she describes anything from like the garden, mm -hmm. you know, their yard to, <sighs> the way a certain dish tastes to right. watching her sons on the basketball court. Like it's just so vividly drawn. I just, it's just such a beautiful book. So there's so much that I love about this book. Yeah, I agree. I feel like the writing to me really stuck out the, the poetry of her language, also the appreciation for art. Yeah. Cause they're both artists. Right. And I thought that that was really special and powerful and you feel, this book feels like a piece of art to mm -hmm. me. It doesn't necessarily feel like a book and not, and I don't want to say that in a way that makes the listeners think that it's like not accessible right. like, or that it's like high, high brow art. or yeah, something. Yeah, it's exactly. not that. It's very exactly. accessible. It just, it like, I keep like moving my body kind yes. of like side to side. It feels very fluid and like a breath. Yeah. Like it just feels very full on like there's an inhale and an exhale and then there's all that comes in between and it's connected and it feels like very full and rich yeah. in a way that I wasn't expecting. Like I read and I really loved um, Joan Didion's A I Year of Magical Thinking. Have you read it? Yes. And that's another book that I love. And this book feels different than that book. Oh, I totally agree. And I, I don't know exactly why. And both books I love, but this, this book, um, the light of the world just feels more like rich to me. I'm so glad that you mentioned Joan Didion. <laughs> okay. Like, okay, because yes, right. So Joan Didion's Year of Magical Thinking, and then I think also Blue Nights is the I've other. I've never read that. She wrote one about her husband's passing. Oh yes, and one I did. about the her daughter's one, passing. The one, right. The one, yes, I saw the play. There was like yes, a Broadway a play, play. Yeah. with Vanessa Redgrave right. was in it. And I, I saw it. That's when I lived in New York and I saw everything. Oh my gosh. I never saw it, but I read both <laughs> books. And I'm, I love that you mentioned that because those are two books that I hold alongside this book as explore, like deep explorations of grief. What right. does it mean to lose someone who is your heart? And right? like suddenly. And suddenly, right? And in Joe Didion's case, her daughter had gotten sick, like septic, mm -hmm. and was in the hospital. And like one night after visiting her, her and her husband are at the house like eating dinner and he just drops dead. Exactly. So she's dealing with these like two grief anxiety, stress. And then in Elizabeth Gilbert's or Elizabeth Alexander's case, her husband also drops dead, but it's not tied to any other stress or grief. Right. It's really just like out of thin air. Yeah. He's on the, he's on the treadmill, uh, treadmill and Ugh. has a yeah coronary event. So uh, the, but what I think is so interesting, and I totally agree with your assessment of like 
here are two books about grief, but so different. Didion's is like, it's Didion, right? It's like precise mm-hmm. and this like eagle eyed perception and like observation. And she's describing everything. There's, but there's a kind of cold precision about yeah. it almost. Um, in that way that makes me love Joan Didion. Yeah. Like in the same, the same way that she's describing someone take an LSD trip and right. like, um, uh, the white album, right? right? Like that's her gift is she's like describing these epic things, but like as a total reporter, um, and but Elizabeth Alexander, there's such a depth of emotion and um, like I, I think rich is exactly the right word of richness to how she talks about the contours of her grief. Yeah, and like hearing you say that about John Denny, it's making me understand a little bit. Like one of the things that I really liked about the structure of this book is kind of in the beginning, they're kind of these the chapters or the sections are like kind of longer and they're about her relationship with her husband, Fikre. I think that's how you say it. I'm Fikre. not sure how to pronounce it, but let's go with that. Let's I think that's what she put like phonetically. Anyways, okay. with her husband and it's kind of like you get to know them and you kind of, you hear about their life and their past and their history. And then after he passes, they're broken into these really short like staccato mm-hmm. moments. Mm-hmm. And I feel like she does a great job of, of letting us feel feel what she's feeling through her writing and like through the structure. And I think that that is really different than Joan Didion, who's like more clinical Mm -hmm. and more Mm -hmm. removed. And that's also like the title, the year of magical thinking. It's like this whole year about how she gets through this grief by like creating like this fantasy life for herself. So she doesn't have to feel. Yeah. I, you know, one of the things, another thing that I love about this book, and um, I hadn't thought about this as being connected to Didion's title or actually what Didion's doing in that book. But I love the magic in this book mm-hmm. and like um, the kind of, um, you know, so so she's talking about how her husband believed in the lottery mm-hmm. and like, um, you know, how he bought lottery tickets for yeah. her because he wanted to win the lottery. Um, she talks about how they see this hawk devour a squirrel and that she believes that that actually um, was a sign of what was to come with his with his death. Mm-hmm. She talks about how they saw when her mother-in-law was dying, they she saw a red fox cross a path and she in retrospect realizes that that was like a sign that her mother-in-law was there's all there are all these elements of like magic and kind of um uh metaphys you know the the metaphysical Mm -hmm. and um that i really love um that she includes here because it's not didion it's not what didion's doing where she's like engaging in magical thinking as a way to cope but it's like elizabeth alexander admitting that she believes in this kind of invisible the this world of invisible forces which i just really appreciate as someone who like actually really is into astrology and is really into these things that i can feel kind of ashamed to admit when i'm trying to be a serious person right (laughs) um but here's this brilliant like tenured yale professor who you know who who read uh wrote and read a poem for obama's inauguration and is like quite serious as a scholar and artist admitting that there's this these kind of unknowable forces swirling around us that we can gain insight if we notice, you know, from right. if we notice. Well, um, you can tell me no, you don't have to answer this. When my father passed away, I discovered a lot of like kind of supernaturally mm-hmm. things that I was like into or like that mm-hmm. helped me. Yeah. And I wonder if you kind of discovered that about yourself also after your aunt passed away. I have friend, like I have a very good girlfriend who is convinced that her mother is in butterflies. And so every time like she'll be like on a hike and she'll be going through something hard and like a butterfly will like come and sit Mm -hmm. by her and she's like, Oh, that's my mom, you know? And like, I've heard that a lot and you're right. It kind of, 
not in the exact same way in this book, like something so literal, but these supernatural things do come up. And I found them like when I passed away, my father, when I, my father passed away, I was on an airplane Mm. and I woke up to turbulence and I'm, nobody knows if that was the exact moment that he passed away or not, but I'm convinced that it was. And I'm convinced that when I'm on a plane, because I hate flying and it gets really turbulent that like, that's my dad being like, it's okay. I got you. I wonder if you have had similar Hmm. type things that you've discovered that maybe you never would have thought before you experienced the grief, but once you did. Oh, that's such an interesting question. I mean, I'm thinking about the fact that, you know, I I got to spend the last three weeks of my life, uh, the last three weeks of her life with my aunt as Hmm. as she was dying. And um, there was such a blessing in that, you know, that I got to be with her because I was living in Oakland at the time mm. and I came home and I was with her, you know, um, day in and day out. And I remember that, uh, when she was in the hospital, when she, um, had it, had a kind of event occur that told us that we needed to take her to the hospital. Um, eventually I, left to go get some things to bring them Mm -hmm. back to the hospital so that I could be there for the night. And the moment I pulled in the driveway, my mom called to say she's gone. Mm. And I've always read that as like, she, my aunt didn't want me in the room when she passed. She didn't want me by her side. I've heard that too, that like people will wait until certain people are present or Mm -hmm. away before they transition. And I really believe that. I think that, um, she just didn't want me to, she just didn't want me there when she passed away. So yes, there are certain things that, um, I feel, and like, no one can tell me different too. You know what I mean? Like, I don't really care your opinion on like, well, the science says like, like, I don't care. The wolf or like the fox. And it's like, sure, it could be or not. Like, that's not actually important, but it's something that's like comforting and also like maybe makes you feel more grounded yeah. in all your grief. Yeah, I think that's right. But yeah, I remember. So my um, when my dad before my dad passed away, my mom's really good friend. She had lost her mother, and she'd like done a lot of hospice stuff and all this stuff. Mm. And so she gave me this book that was like about like telling your loved one it's okay to go or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I remember, even though my dad was really sick, I remember being like, this book is like such a joke, whatever. And then as soon as my dad passed away, I was like, this book is the most profound yes. thing I've ever read in my life. Like right. it has to, this has to have been true. Like uh, my dad actually, this is like kind of a funny story, but he passed away the same day as Whitney Houston. Oh, wow. And my dad was always late, always late. And I wasn't home. I was on my way home, but my mom said that like, that night before that morning, he like woke up and was like, I gotta go. I gotta go. I gotta go meet somebody. I'm, I'm late. I can't be late for this, whatever. And my mom was like, uh, you know, and then she was like, after my dad passed away in the morning and then like later in the day, the news came out about Whitney Houston. And my dad was like, and my mom was like, he was literally going to meet Whitney Houston. <laughs> like the only person he would ever be on time for is Whitney That's Houston. Hilarious. Like truly what a joke. We're all idiots. He was just waiting. Like it wasn't me being like, it's time to go. It was literally like Whitney Houston's waiting right, for me. I got right. it. I got it. It's time. Now's the moment. But I do truly believe that he was waiting for Whitney Houston. Yeah. Like, a hundred percent. He knew. He was like, I get to go to have a concert with Whitney Houston. Yeah. Like, see you all later. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I love that her book gives us permission to right. like, remember those things in our own lives and feel justified and right. And, right. Um, and our hold beliefs. on to those moments. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the things that that's also really beautiful and kind of supernaturally is the son, Simon mm. takes Elizabeth with him to heaven to see the dad. That's beautiful. 
That's beautiful. Oh, I just yeah. got chills just thinking about it. That that scene that um, it's just really. Yeah. I mean, it also makes me feel like, well, that kid is clearly those two people's kid. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. That. And you know, he wasn't like six. He was like twelve yeah. or something. Like he was like a full sized kid. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like. I'm sure that it was special to her, but to read it as an outsider and be like, wow, I see the dad in him. I see the mom in him. Yeah. And it also, that's one of the moments um, that makes me feel um, certain that in my own family, I want an openness around death. Mm -hmm. Like I want a culture of openness around talking about death because I think that he would feel comfortable enough to say like, do you want to go with me to visit dad? Okay. This is what I do. Okay. Lay down on my bed. Right. I close your eyes now. Okay. Now we're going here. Do you see it? Okay. Now there's dad. Do you see him? Or, you know, it's like bring her into his world. Um, that's very vulnerable, you know, for anybody, but especially for a kid, um, to, and then also this piece of like, is this going to upset my mom too much? I think that's what I would might worry about. Yeah, like, totally. Well, here I have this ritual that allows me to feel closer to dad. But if I bring my mom into this, is she going to break mm. down in tears? And then I'm going to have to comfort her. And I'm going to feel bad. And I'm going to feel bad. Right. And so I, there, there are many ways in this book that I feel really um, guided by the culture that they have in their family around like, I'm in pain. I miss him. Mm-hmm. I'm suffering. How do you feel? Are you also in pain? Are you also suffering? Let's talk about it. How can we help each other? How can we be in support to one another? Um, That feels really important to me. And as a parent of a young child, it was a good reminder. Like, I want that for us. Yeah, totally. And he also says at the end, like, you can come and do this with me whenever you want. I don't think you're ready to do it by yourself. Right. (laughs) Which I just loved. I'm like, like, he's like, this is kind of my thing. Like you can come and hang out with me, but like, don't try, like, don't (laughs) Don't try it away. Yeah. You're not quite ready, mom. You're not advanced. Um, but it's true. Like there is, there does feel, and maybe it's because the children were there Mm -hmm. when he died and they saw him and like, it was like a communal moment, Right. right? It wasn't like they were at school and they came home and dad was just gone. Like, that that trauma was shared. Yeah, shared mm. and not closure, but like, yeah, shared, I guess. Just like something that they all saw and dealt with. Yeah. I mean, whew, whew. one of the other things I think that I think like we like the fullness of the book, the richness of this book is that it's not just her story, but it includes like recipes. Yes. And like poems from oh other people. I'm like the re- I like want to cook me too. Those foods. I'm gonna make. There's some. like the shrimp barca. I'm on that. Yeah. Uh, there's like three or four <laughs> recipes in the book where I was like, yes, please, thank you for coming. Right. Um, but I think that like those are the things that also make a life. Yeah. And, and more than just this book being about grief, this yes. book is about this great love oh and gosh. this family and this companionship and like a life really well lived. Yeah, that's right. Like a life that I was like, I would be happy to die. At 50, I guess, if I knew that I could have, like, accomplished all this great stuff and been this person for so many people. And, like, he just seemed like such a wonderful – Incredible person. Yeah. So that's the other reason why I love this book is that it's, like, relationship goals for me. Mm -hmm. Like, I read this book and I'm just like, what a love. What a love. I mean, it's just so beautiful. It's like they meet by chance at a coffee shop and then they, you know, they – he shows her, her his art studio and 
you know, they just like fall in love with each other's stories. They meet each other's friends and it feels like family right. and they have these elaborate dinner parties. They just take such joy in food and, um, conversation and having a house full of people they love and, yeah. um, they believe in each other fully. And it's just such a, that was the other reason I wanted to reread this because, um, I think it, in some ways it's like an antidote against cynicism about relationships, about mm-hmm. romantic love. And my book touches, you know, I feel like my third chapter about family and about so-called single parenthood, right. like there's a way in which you can read that as like a pretty cynical take on love relationships. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there it's, it's yeah, much they, more than that. It's yes. a lot more than yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but I think they're, reading this book is like a, it's a great reminder that, um, that like, you know, really complex, nuanced, fun, joyful, romantic love is possible. And, um, and that there can be a lot of joy in creating the culture of a family, you know, that you can be like living your life and enjoying your books and making your art and making your, you know, making your food. And then you find someone with whom you share these ideas about what makes for a good life. And I just appreciate that she lays it out on the page for us. She invites us into, Mm -hmm. um, all the ways in which they so enjoyed each other. And she, you know, she says, I think they were together for 17 years, married for 16 years and that she takes us through, the kind of evolution of their relationship and that right. even though it was, um, it ended too soon. Um, there's so much, um, so much that they were able to do together and make together. Yeah. And like, there's a section where she goes through like 16 Easter's like yeah. 16 Christmases, one fish feast of yeah. the seven fish like this and, and like chronicling a life in events and like shared mm. events. That was a really special section. There were a few sections. I take notes when I read for the show, and there are a few sections where I was just like, wow, page nine. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Page <laughs> right, 10. Which right. when I went back to look at the notes last night before we're like taking down my oops, taking down my notes, I was like, I have to go back to read all these pages because I have no idea what wow nine right, means. But right. um and the other part of this of their shared created world is that they come from two very different worlds, right. which she talks about a lot. Like, what are the chances that we would have come together. Mm-hmm. What are the chances that, you know, this man from Eritrea and this woman from Harlem and and that they were born like two months apart mm-hmm. and they find each other and they know right away. Yeah. Just like really magical. Yeah, it is. It really is. Magical. And it's a she takes such care with like explaining um it's interesting how she writes about him as like, you know, he was a refugee who had to leave home as I think a teenager and mm-hmm. You know, English was like his fourth language because he had learned all these other languages. Right. And he ended up speaking like seven or something yeah. crazy. Yeah. But he had, you know, had to live in all these places because his, because um, Eritrea was war torn and uh, his mother sent him away. Um, I, she handles like the telling of his story and like the geopolitical forces surrounding his story was set in such a delicate way mm-hmm. so that, um, he never becomes, I don't know. There's just such a, you somehow see him as a full person. You don't see him as defined by that refugee experience Mm -hmm. or, you know, defined by, um, being the chef, right. Or defined by being a visual artist. He somehow is, she brings him to life on the pages being all of these people and encompassing all of these experiences. And it's just such a, um, what a tribute, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, 
I'm not sure if she set out for it to be that probably on some level, but like, what a beautiful tribute. I think, you know, I wrote this book, I wrote my book thinking like, someday my Isabel will probably read this and I hope that she feels um, good about what she reads. Right. Um, and there's something satisfying in that. And I, and I, I wonder how Elizabeth Alexander feels having read this. Does she feel like, yes, I poured what I could offer, you mm-hmm. know, to this beloved man into this book? Because if so, that must be such a satisfying, such a satisfying feeling. Right. And I wonder if her sons have read it yeah. or if they will read it. Yeah. And what they'll think. It's dedicated to them. Right. I'm sure they will. Don't you think you would want to? I mean, they're like, I was trying to do the math. They must be nearly grown now, right? Because if they were like 12 and 13 and this book came out four years ago. Oh, no. They're teenagers. Older teenagers. Well, I think, yeah, I think the older one, well, now, 2019, came out in 2015, which means, but he died in 2012 or 13, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they're older. They're like 20s and 18, 20. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um but I, I, in my version, there's like a little afterward oh. where she, I think she does mention that she hopes that they would read it one day or, you know, mm-hmm. she talks about how the book, she took a year off from teaching to do the book, like mm-hmm. a sabbatical to write the book. And yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. But anyways, I think, I think she mentions that maybe they have read it or that she hopes that they, that they will read it. Yeah. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Kind of to tie this back into your book a little bit, you mentioned it, um, like the single black motherhood. Obviously, in this case, in the case of Elizabeth Alexander, it kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. happens to her. She goes from being in a partnership and raising two children to being a single mother. But in your book, one of the things that stuck out to me about single black motherhood was that its relationship to the patriarchy and mm-hmm. how there it, it's like almost a safe space from patriarchy yeah. because it's so multi generational and womanal mm-hmm. female patriarchal <laughs> yeah matriarchal is definitely the no I was with you yeah. I like womanal though I, <laughs> I like, like womanal too it's not a definite no on womanal but <laughs> what do you like I don't know if you have thoughts about if it matters or if it not that if it matters, but if it changes how the relationship to patriarchy is changed by the way in which a black woman becomes a single black mother. Mm, interesting. And I'm sure it does a little bit, but I just wonder if like in the end. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think what's important for children is that they have as many adults as possible who really love them and right. care about them. Um, and so if that comes from having to parents of different sexes, like great. If that comes from um, having live growing up with your mother and your grandmother, um, you know, also great. I th- I write a lot in my book about um, the importance of extended family. You know, mm-hmm. I grew up with. I didn't grow up with my father. I grew up with my mom and um, at my aunt Pam, who I mentioned. Um, in the house and then this larger network of like my other aunts and uncles and cousins and then extended family in the neighborhood where I grew up. Um, I I grew up in the house that my grandfather's grandparents built. Mm. And so we had this whole extended network um, in the community. And so I've always believed that, you know, what kids need is love and what kids kids need is um, adult attention and care. Right. uh, And that it doesn't need to be defined in these like strict ways of the the kind of nuclear family. And then also, you know, there's a way in which um, pro-marriage rhetoric, uh, we have to listen to it. You know, we have to listen to, oh, well, I remember Mitt Romney during the 2012 presidential run up talking about, he was asked some question during the debates about gun violence and somehow he brought it back to like gun violence in Chicago. And somehow he brought it back to like, there are too many, you know, black female headed households in Chicago. We also saw it with uh, Obama, candidate Obama talking about, you know, the, the perils of single female headed households. Um, And so this is like an equal opportunity shaming that we get from the right and the left. But I think a lot of these um, conversations happen without any acknowledgement of the history of black family. You know, if you um, we survived enslavement and that was a period during which parents couldn't lay any legal claim to their children. A child could be sold away from you. You might fall in love or want to be a life partner with somebody and that person could be killed or sold away from you. So there are these these kind of kinship ties have always been tenuous and and we've built family, um, in the best ways that we know how. And so I think in some ways, um, 
when we look at our family structures today, there, you know, we have to look at that in the, in the larger historical context. Um, but yeah, I think that, I think that, um, growing up where, when you don't have to watch these kind of like power relations play out among your parents, you know, between your parents where you're watching your mom cower because your dad says like dinner should be on the table or like your mom's telling you like, wait till your father gets home. Or like you're kind of like growing up surrounded by these ideas about who has power, who doesn't, whose needs matter more than others. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that's very dangerous and toxic. And so I'm happy to be, you know, um, uh, in a, uh, trying to raise my child in a situation where her father is very present as a co-parent and like they have a lovely relationship and he and I have a great relationship too as co-parents and friends. Um, but I think, I think in a lot of these conversations, it's just assumed that marriage is the ideal way to raise a child. And sometimes we have to think more about what's actually going to work for the adults and the child or children in that situation. Right. And so with her, I mean, with Elizabeth Alexander, like it's only loss, right? Right. It's like nothing's gained by her husband being gone. Um, It's only deep loss and, and, and sadness. I just wonder how that changes the way that she approaches parenting. You know, like if it feels like she's trying to hold space for him and that male authority, or if, I mean, I'm sure it's probably a lot of things, but I, I read these books back to back. So of course your book informed my thinking about this book. And I was thinking kind of like, you know, how does becoming a single parent through loss, Mm -hmm. how does that shape her relationship to parenting and to the greater idea? Because, you know, she is, she does then become a statistic, right? She does then become a single black woman leading her household. I hadn't even thought about that. It's true. Yeah. And I don't know what it means, but I just, I feel like there is this element and her kids are older, but it's two boys. You know, she has two sons. You have a daughter, which probably, you know, there's that dynamic too, that is probably different. You know, you, like you mentioned, your father wasn't in the home where you were raised and you were raised by your mother and your aunt. So like you're a very matriarchal line. And I wonder, I, I don't know. It just brought up a lot of questions for me about how we look at single motherhood and if some form of it is legitimate, mm-hmm. right? Or mm-hmm. or not. Like yours in your book kind of feels like a choice that you got you and your partner ended up making versus like if he had been taken to of prison. Course. Right. Or, and I do talk about that. You yes. know, like that there's all That's these right. different ways that black women can choose or be forced, forced. into single That's right. black motherhood. And I, I don't know. It like because it is so stigmatized and because there is so much pressure for marriage and that it's, it seems like a failure. That's right. That's so interesting. There's just so much. I I don't even, I don't Yeah. (laughs) I hadn't even thought about like looking at this book through the lens of like, oh, Elizabeth Alexander becomes a like an unmarried black mom. And so like, how is she affected by the stigma? But I think one thing that's really lovely, there's the scene in the book where, you know, I think again, it's a dream. I love the role that dreams play in this book, but I think it's a dream. Um, and then she wakes up and she knows she has this dream that her husband is in in some way. And she wakes up and she knows like, he's not in this house anymore. We need to leave this house. Mm-hmm. And so then she picks up her sons and they move, they leave New Haven and move to New York city. And there's this beautiful scene where, you know, someone has, um, thrown them a party, like a welcome party. Mm-hmm. And so here's their community, right? Like here's their New York community yeah. welcoming, welcoming them there. Um, and so you get to meet like, 
you know, who we assume will become the people who are part of the daily fabric of their new right. lives. Um, and, um, similarly, like they do such a good, she does such a good job of showing in new Haven that while they have this beautiful nuclear family, they have, you know, their friends that come over for dinner and they, you know, her, um, you know, Alondra, like, I love that. She's like naming all these famous people and using yeah. just their first name. Like, Oh my God, is that Alondra Nelson? <laughs> Um, but yes, they have this, you know, their friends come in and out, they have their New Haven neighbors and people who are part of the Yale community. But I think it gets back to this idea. What, you know, what I was mentioning earlier about community is being so critical when you're in to family life, really, no matter what the structure is, right? right? Like I'm a single, you know, an unpartnered, um, mom. And so it's like critical that I have other adults around me from my daughter's grandmothers and grandfather and aunt and, you know, my friends, um, it's critical that I have these other adults around me. But I think even if I were partnered, like I still would want us to be part of a rich community because that just makes everybody's lives better. Totally. So I think that that's, um, I think I didn't even, you know, apply that. I didn't, I hadn't even thought about Elizabeth Alexander as a single mom because she immediately, when she decides we're leaving this house, he is no longer here. It's they're ushered into this new community that awaits them with open arms. Yeah, it's true. Her life does feel like very full of humans. Oh my gosh. Isn't it? It's like, there's so many sister friends Mm -hmm. and she's a, she has a brother, but her parents are only children. So there's no aunts and uncles, no cousins, no cousins. And it just feels like she comes from a family of like a million people. Right. Right. And he did. Fikre had a lot of relatives, but all over the world. world, And that's the other part about this book. It's like, so, I mean, she mentions the diaspora probably 500 yeah. times in the book, but yeah. it is. It's like they come from one place, they come from another place. There's family in Oakland, yeah. there's family in Paris, there's family in Italy. There's like this, I don't know. I mean, that's the thing about blackness that's so mm. amazing is that it's so vast mm-hmm. and it touches so many places in the world. And it's not like being Irish where you're from Ireland or like maybe you went to England or maybe you went to America. Mm-hmm. Like it's like you can be black and be anywhere and be rooted there and connected there. Even though of course we didn't start out being rooted there, but like now that you belong, you can belong in these places. And like, I don't know. I just thought that was really Mm. special. I love that. Like it was like a, it was not a practical, it was like a really, um, Hmm. What's the word I'm looking for? It was, it, it was, really nice to see the diaspora in a family in that way, as opposed to like in your mind, like I know black people are everywhere, but like being like, this guy speaks Italian and like he cooks Italian food. He also cooks food from like all over and he has his own like mix. And I think in the beginning it's like, oh, is this authentic food? And he's like, well, I mean... I made it exactly. and like it comes from my experience and that is like so black to me mm-hmm. right it's like mm-hmm. what does it mean to be black I don't know like right. I'm, I'm living black it. and I'm living I'm it I'm living it yeah right. yeah no I I think that that's um another reason why I love this book there's this part where um they where do they go after her husband passes do they go to Italy to visit friends Maybe. she takes the sun somewhere and it's like they're dear friends, and of course they miss, you know, her husband. But they're um, she t- she writes about how she slept. She gets her first deep sleep oh, yeah. since he's passed, yeah. and I just love that because it's like, you know, and she's talking about like we're having our 
you know, our like tapas and aperitifs or whatever, like some, they're having their like little beautiful snacks out on some sun-drenched patio and it just sounds so like lovely. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, she's like, I was able to actually get good rest because I was among people who were holding me Mm -hmm. and I felt safe and held. Mm. And then there's like an earlier scene when she's describing, um, when, you know, she and her husband before they're married, when they first meet and she's still living and teaching in Chicago and he comes and visits her and they have a dinner party and her friends are like checking him out and then quickly, and then get on the phone with her parents right? and they're like, okay, this is the, this is the man. This is how he loves her, like stamp of approval. Um, but I love these scenes because it places them in different parts of that diaspora that you're talking about. And we see how they just fit so perfectly. Right. That there's always a community there. Like that there's always a sense of belonging, Mm -hmm. which I don't, I don't know that I feel that in my day-to-day life that I like belong in a lot of different communities. But then when I think about it, I'm like, I do have communities all over, Mm -hmm. not international so much, but you know, I lived in New York and I am from Oakland and I'm here in LA and like all the places that I've been and all the people and you know, like you have a friend who has a wedding somewhere and you're like, oh, my other friend lives here. And right. like that you, and that that is like, I mean, that to me is so much part of life. Mm-hmm. Like, and I grew up um, similar, I think to Simon and Solomon that like my parents were always hosting. Mm. And so that is something that like my husband and I love to do now too. And like to see that in her story, I felt really, like we were talking about last week, I felt really seen like yeah. in this memoir in that way that, that, those spaces, like when we open up our home to our friends and our family, that that is really valuable to other people's lives. It's because I feel selfish. I'm like, I love hosting. I love having people be at my house. (laughs) I don't have to go anywhere. Like I can just do it at my house. I can do it my way. And like, I can like control the whole situation, (laughs) but that it's meaningful. Absolutely. And that people love getting those invitations. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. That made me feel really nice. Yeah. Yeah. And that again, like that's just, this book is so many things because it, like I said, you know, their love is relationship goals, but it's really life goals. Yeah. Like I'm just, I just, um, it feels like a real reminder that, you know, you can build your life in this way right. to have to be filled with beauty and friends and right. great food and laughter yeah. and great art. And then when something goes wrong, you have that community to yeah. hold you and help you and heal you yeah. in ways. There's, um, there's a Lucille Clifton poem in here mm-hmm. that I just, I really want to read because I, it like took my breath away, yeah. but I don't have to find it. On my copy, it's on page 94. Okay. Let's see. <laughs> so it's yeah, um, a Lucille Clifton poem um, about her husband's passing and it's called the death of Fred Clifton, um, 11, 10, 84, age 49. And she says, I seem to be drawn to the center of myself leaving the edges of me in the hands of my wife. And I saw with the most amazing clarity so that I had not eyes, but sight and rising and turning through my skin. There was all around, there was all around, not the shape of things, but Oh, at last the things themselves. Hmm. And the poem is from the perspective of Fred Clifton as he as he's dying in Lucille Clifton's imagination of what he was experiencing as he's dying. And I just, I'm like not really a poetry person. I'm new to poetry. And that one really just Mm. like landed for me. Like I was like, whoa, okay. Yeah. No, it's lovely. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, 
I again, I just it's a lovely poem. I'm also not like a, a that practiced in yeah. talking about poetry, but the thing that really um, hits me about this is I just love the anything that invites us to think deeply about death. Yeah, you know, um, anything that gives us permission to acknowledge whatever emotions come up when we think about death, whether that's right. fear or like release, you know, a kind of longing for that freedom and release. Right. Um, uh, because I, you know, I, I think that's not something many of us feel permission to do. Um, I think, you know, a lot of us deal with death, um, as something to be afraid of. And so something not to talk much about. And so, um, I really appreciate all the ways in which, Elizabeth Alexander is like inviting us into different people's perspectives of death and right. what it, what it felt like, what it meant for them, how it changed their lives. Right. And, and like in this poem, it also feels like a communal event, mm. right? That like he's, he sees his wife and as he pulls inward there, she is and there they are. And that, you know, as he's leaving, he's not alone. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really really powerful. And you're right. Like we have this fear around death. And I think some of it is like the unknown and not being in control and all Mm -hmm. that stuff. And I think the other part of it is the grief and the sadness Mm -hmm. and that people don't want to talk about death because they're worried that someone else might get upset. And we've talked about this a little bit on the show in the past. Like you're never going to make me more sad about my dad having died than I already am by bringing it up. Like I, it's constantly with me. Like I'm sure point. for you when like when it comes to the day of your aunt's passing mm-hmm. or maybe her birthday and like people don't reach out to you or whatever because they're worried. I don't want to make her sad. Right. And you're like, I didn't forget this exactly. day. Like this is a day that I'll always remember. Yeah. This day is like seared in my being. Right. And that we're too scared to upset people even though I find that like the most comforting thing is my best girlfriend always like will text me or say something about my dad like – honor on the day that he passed yeah. or this year on father's day, one of my other best friends texted me and was like, I was just thinking about the day I met your dad. Yeah. And like, that was so special for me because of course I'm thinking about my dad on father's day when all of you guys are posting all your cute dads right. in the seventies with their mustaches <laughs> and stuff. And I'm like, look at your cute dad. Like, of course I'm thinking about that, but that we're scared to engage with people who have experienced death or yeah. people who are on the verge of death. Like I'm really bad with sick people, mm, like mm-hmm. terminal people. For yeah. some reason, it just really freaks me yeah. out. And I know this about myself and I really, it's like, it makes me sad about, like, I don't know. I'm like embarrassed about it, even though I know it. I just, I don't know because I don't have True. that relationship with death. And like, I've not really been coached through it or walked through it or really experienced it except for my own father. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's just so much around death where we've like villainized it yeah. because it's hard mm-hmm. or sad and we don't want to feel uncomfortable or... Yeah. You know, and I absolutely like if we could sit in it more and and talk about it more and be okay with it more. Yeah. I just I, think I think we'd be the better for it. Yeah. I think we'd be the better for it. Yeah. No, and I I mean I so appreciate you saying that. I um my aunt's birthday was July was is July fourth and so oh. it just passed and, and yeah, it just makes me feel better when people reach out and say, you know, just acknowledge I'm thinking of her today. Right. You know, I know you must be too. And I think that there's, I, again, like this book, you know, there's a part where she, the, the author says, um, nobody cried today. She says, I remember my mom saying this when I was about 
you know, I, maybe right. I was six and my sibling was four or something like that. And my mom said, oh, today is a different, is a different day because it's the first time in six years that nobody, right. first day in six years that nobody's cried. And then she, Elizabeth Alexander says like, I didn't cry today. Right. You know, t- today's the first day since my husband died that I didn't cry. And I just appreciate the kind of like saying, you know, writing, laying out, these are the ways that we mark our grief. Mm-hmm. You know, did I cry today? Um, or I don't remember her getting into this much in the book, but it's something I think about. Like, am I am I fully giving myself over to the grief, or am I repressing it in a way that's going right. to be dangerous for me down the road? You know, right. but just all these ways that I think it's important to reflect on our relationship to death. And um, you know, she writes at one point that her sons tell her, like, "Mom, we could always hear you weeping in the garden." Mm-hmm. She thinks she's quietly right. going out in the garden to I cry. Love that. Yeah, I love her, her kids. I love it. Yeah, they're great. They're great. And, you know, even that, even having someone say, "Like, we hear you crying." Yeah, like, all right, lady. Right, like, why are you trying Do you to need pretend? A exactly. Like, yeah. we're crying too. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I just um. I, I, this book has been helpful to me. You know, the other, there's a line in here that was so meaningful to me when my aunt passed away. She says, um, I don't even know if I have it marked, but she, she keeps repeating, like, where did you go? Mm. Where did you go? And I just remember having that question in my mind too. It's very strange when someone dies mm-hmm. because you can still feel their presence, mm-hmm. but then, you know, for a while you can trick yourself into thinking they're just away on a trip or whatever. And it's like, where where are you? Where is right. your spirit? Where does it reside? Is right. it just swirling all around me now? Is it off in some other far corner of the universe? Like, and I just um, and I think the line is something like, "Where did you go? I thought that we were all you needed." Mm. Almost this sense of like abandonment, right? 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 Because um, I was part of it too. Yeah, not like a blame, but just like you left. This is sad. This yeah. sucks. Yeah, I wonder. You, you mentioned that you hope that you'll have like a space for death in your own family. Mm-hmm. Do you have any ideas of how you will do that? I don't really, because even, you know, um, we'll talk about like my aunt being, you know, my, like my daughter will say like aunt Pam passed away right? Okay. or she'll talk about, um, but she doesn't know what that means. And I don't mm. know how to really talk about it with her right. because it is such a mystery. How do you choose to verbalize what that means? Right. So I don't know yet specifically how I want to do it, but I just know that I want us to always be able to talk about it and not to feel um, embarrassed about, you mm-hmm. know, our grief. Um So I think it'll be another, th- you know, just like with this book, I had a ton of questions about, uh, being pregnant and parenting, I think I'll learn by just asking people who seem right. to do it well. Right. Yeah. Cause that's also such, feels like such a private thing mm-hmm. that I wonder like, how will you know when other people do it well? Mm. Like it's, even if your home is a place where you talk to your daughter about grief, like I wonder if people would know right. that if they came into your home for dinner, right. you know, like it just, I wish that it was like something that we did talk about and like could 
could talk about, I don't know, maybe I'm just going to start talking about it more. Yeah. I have to say on this show, we've had like three or four episodes this year about grief really? or like related to death or terminal illness and mm-hmm. stuff, which is, this is our second year, but it's really, that was not something we talked about at all last year. And I don't know why this year, I don't know if it's like my guests have been really into it or yeah. I've wanted to talk about it, but I've, I hear so much feedback from people like that it is valuable Mm -hmm. to hear about and talk about, which I just, I mean, that makes me feel nice. I always feel nice when people tell me that they like what we're talking about on the show, but specifically around grief and like very different books about it. Like we talk about it a lot. We talked about it a lot. Um, a few weeks back, we did a book called The Unwinding of the Miracle, which was by Juliet Williams, and it's her memoir about dying from cancer. Oh, yes, of course. And of so that course. one obviously is like really in your face. Yeah. And that one was a lot about like what it's like to be dying and to deal with that. But in this book, it's so much more about like what does it mean to survive yeah. and be the one who lives and carries on and and how do we do that and hold a place for someone who's passed but also you know, continue – creating the world that we live in just like so much (laughs) it is and i think it's one it's um you know like it's so invisible like there's no space in our culture for letting people grieve right Right. so especially if like you didn't lose a parent or your partner or something like your child or someone close because i remember after my aunt passed just being like uh, I actually need some time, right? <laughs> I need some time right. here. Like I'm not going to work. And luckily I was in a flexible working situation and, and they were understanding, but, um, I think there, we need these conversations because we need to create more of a culture around letting people grieve and acknowledge that it's like a serious process and that it doesn't finish, you know, in like a week or something, mm-hmm. um, after the memorial service, you're not kind of done. Um, and I also think that there's a way in which like people are dealing with grief. This isn't related to death necessarily, but I think in the years, like in our, given our current political situation, mm-hmm. there's a lot of grief um, yeah. that people that we experience um, because we hear these reports of eight year olds caring for three year olds right. and you know det- detained at the border, and yeah. we're like, how is this a country where I live? Um, and what do I do about it? And I think there's a way in which after the election of 2016, people felt um, people entered a, a period of grief. And so I think that there's a, a way that um, we just need to talk more about the, the grief as a legitimate emotion that we all experience, you know, for different reasons and right. that what are the ways that we can help each other through. Yeah. Now you have me thinking about other kinds of grief besides like pa- a passing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's also, I mean, there definitely was like a sense of like mourning after Trump was elected and inaugurated for the Obama presidency. Mm -hmm. Also like what, you know, and I I think obviously that same thing was true. Like when JFK was assassinated, not just a mourning of his life loss, but also the loss of the ideas of his, of his, you know, future for America. Um, Yeah. And when the present situation is such a backlash against what so many people felt excited about. Right. Exactly. And you make sense of that. You know what? We're still trying to make sense (laughs) of it. And I feel like we're going to be trying to make sense of what's going on now for a long time. Like I'm, I'm very curious to see like future generations, how they'll teach now in Mm -hmm. school. If they do teach it, because I remember when I was a kid, they like barely taught like Vietnam. Yeah, you know, anything like, after the Vietnam it was War like, got left off. Yeah. Well, I feel like it was like, okay, civil war, civil rights, Vietnam, Clinton. 
And I was like, <laughs> right. okay. It's like, that feels quick. Clinton yeah. was just right after the Civil War. It's like 10 <laughs> years later. But I hope, I mean, like there, I'm sure there will be like millennium history, like in colleges where it'll be like <laughs> 2000 to 2020. Mm-hmm. And like, what was this time? And like, that it ended, you know, with the 2020 election, fingers crossed, and like that that's like the ushering of a new era, you know, like from 9 11 to Trump, yeah, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I feel like that'll be a history yeah. class for sure. Right, right, right. And like the rise of white nationalism and like the progressive left, and like, I don't know, I'd take that class. <laughs> I would too. Someone teach being, it. Yeah, it's being taught it's right being now. It's being taught right sure. now or getting, it's getting created. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we finish up, I always like to talk about the title and the cover. We have two different editions. You have the um, hardcover Mm -hmm. um, and I have the like paperback that has the Pulitzer sticker and they're actually pretty different. Um, But I think is the art on yours also five feet gray? Because the art on mine is. Um, It says that the cover painting is is feet grays. Yeah. Jacket painting, solitary boat in red and blue by feet gray. Yeah. I feel like even the, I'll link to pictures of both so you guys can see it in the show notes, but I feel like even the pictures on the cover of our books are like pretty different looking. Like they don't look like they're by the same artist at all. Okay. Yours have the angels that as she describes at some point in the book. Yeah. But is this, was the boat described in the book? I don't remember. I don't remember that either. Mm -hmm. But you're immediately introduced. She writes so much about his color palette, his um, colors, that where the colors came from, that she can see, you know, touches of his mother's kitchen and um, the landscape and Eritrea. And um, it's so both of our covers, you know, give give you a taste of that. These rich colors and the on your cover, it's the. Do you you remember the context in which she's talking about the angels? I don't quite remember the context. Me neither. It's also just another nice tribute to him. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, like, I mean, I think that, of course, she would do it. Like, it would seem crazy to have anything else on the cover of her book talking other than his art. But it also feels really nice that it is his art. Like, it I feels didn't. right. I'm so glad you brought that up because I had never um, even checked to see who did that art. Hmm. I am very curious to see an image of him. I haven't I searched Googled. the internet. Did you? I did. Yeah. I Googled her and I saw him. Yeah. He was handsome like she I'm described. Sure. He was handsome just like she described. Yeah. They looked very happy. <laughs> he did have a great smile. Like it, all the things she said were true. His bald head. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the title? Um, the title, The Light of the World. Well, I mean, so you don't have to get very far into the book to to see that or to understand that he was the light of her world yeah. and of their family's Certainly. world. Um, and so that just kind of tells you... Um, there's not a, compl- a lot of complexity in the book around, like, I think there's one sentence where she says, of course, we had our challenges like any married couple, but for the most part, yeah. it's like the one moment right. that you get in, even a hint that they had any kind of right. strife, marital strife. But um, yeah, I think the title tells us straight up, like, I'm about to tell you about this incredible being who right. I had the privilege of knowing for 17 years. But it also... It's in um, the epigraph. Yes. I think in all three of them, it talks oh, about that. Yes. But then also the second one, the Oh Beauty, You Are the Light of the World, mm-hmm. that's what's on his bench at his memorial and, or his gravestone. And that comes from a poem by Derek Walcott called The Light of the World. And I believe Derek Walcott was her mentor. Oh, really? I think at some point she talks oh, okay. about him being her mentor. Yeah. I, I, like, I like the title a lot. I think... It's very straightforward. I think the book 
as as artistic and beautiful and complex as it is, it also is very straightforward. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that that the title is is really good. The only my only thing about the title and my cover with the angels is I thought it was going to be like very Christiany. Oh, interesting. And it's not. No, no. But like it kind of like the light of the world and like seeing the angels. I was like, is this going to go okay. into like a very God? Place? I could see how you think that. Um, yeah. But your book looks totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, I I do think. It's interesting. I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but like a cover says a lot <laughs> about really a book. Does, yeah. It really, really does. And I think that like when you get it right, it can be so important. And when you not even just get it wrong, but when you just kind of don't get hit it right on, mm-hmm. it can, allows the reader to like go in with a lot of mm-hmm. like I wasn't super excited about this book based on this cover. Yeah, I can I can see why. Like the cover is kind of just like blah to me. But once I got going in the book and then I looked on the back and I saw it was his art, like it clicked. Mm. But I still was kind of like, eh. yeah, it's funny. I did I didn't I hadn't given that much thought. I'm trying. I'm, so I am part of a book club. I do okay. want to mention this, um, even though I said like, oh, I barely read, but I am part of a book club. A shout out that I've been <laughs> in for almost a decade. Oh, wow. um, and it is made up of, um, it was, uh, Christina Rizka, who's an education reporter. She writes a lot for mother Jones or I'm sorry. She writes a lot for the Atlantic. Now okay. she was on staff at mother Jones for a long time. She got us all together. Um, Jamila King, who is a, a journalist who is, who writes for mother Jones right now. And um, Gavin Leonard, who's an organizer who's based in Ohio. And the four of us got to know each other because we all uh, were in some way connected to Wiretap, which was an online publication that uh, Christina was the editor and publisher of. Um, maybe like 15 years ago, we all got to know each other through Wiretap. So anyway, we are in a book club, and um, that's how I initially read this book. I okay. can't remember which of our members suggested it. I think I may have because I knew it was about grief and I was mm. like, guys, I need this right now. Um, but that I, I wanted to just do a shout out. So we call ourselves the think tank because Ooh. we do read books, but like the books are kind of secondary. We It's just an opportunity once a month to check in with one another. We kind of um, help each other problem solve and troubleshoot. Mm-hmm. We just really all trust each other's minds. And mm. so it's a way that we can keep up with each other. It's a, We do it uh, via Google Hangout, but... Um, that's the, that's one way that I get introduced to books that I read. And it's certainly how I was introduced to this book. I love that. That's so good. That's more of your finding community, like-minded community. Exactly. That's so good. Anything else that you want to say about this book or anything in general? No, I don't think so. I just appreciate the opportunity to talk about, uh, this book and my book and books in general. Yay. Me too. Thank you for being here. Of course, Danny's book is called, we live for the, we, the political power of black motherhood. It's out in the world. Go get your copy. And then the book we discussed today is the light of the world by Elizabeth Alexander, which as we mentioned, has been in the world for a few years. So go check that out. Um, thank you, Danny, so much for being here. Thank you. It's such a pleasure talking with you. Yay. And you guys, we will see you in the stacks. That does it for us today on The Stacks. Thank you guys so much for listening. And thank you to Danny McLean for being our guest. Everything we talked about today can be found in the show notes. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join The Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show, go to patreon.com slash The Stacks. Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.
one, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.